chapter number 7. Isaiah chapter number 7. So it is December, the month of December, and I'm looking at Isaiah chapter number 7. Who can guess what verse it might be uh, that I'm going to call you to your attention to this morning? Isaiah 7, verse number 14. When you found your place, if you're able to stand easily, I'd like to invite you to do that. We'll read the Word of God, and then I'll have a word of prayer and invite you to be seated. I'll get into the message this morning. I want you to notice, as we begin this, just notice the first, um, the first phrase of this verse. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. I, I think I was in seventh grade the first time I ever heard that there were people who did not celebrate Christmas. I'm pretty sure I was in seventh grade. I'm not guaranteeing that because my memory isn't any good at all, but, but at least my imagination tells me it was in seventh grade. First time I met uh, a, a kid who I went to high school, or went to uh, school with, who was Jehovah's Witness, and was shocked to learn that they didn't uh, celebrate Christmas or birthdays either. And, um, you know, just immediately thought, well, these people are strange. They don't celebrate. And because I was a kid, the reason I thought they were strange was not for doctrinal reasons or anything like that. I wasn't a believer in those days. The thing was, is those are two opportunities for presents that just got washed away. This must be at a religion that doesn't believe in giving children presents or something like that. And, uh, but that was the first time that I ever heard of someone who didn't, who, who, who felt like, uh, for religious reasons, did not uh, celebrate Christmas. Um, over the years, um, I've discovered that they're not the only ones. And in the United States of America, there has been, since our very early days, there has been this kind of this little delicate uh, balance between um, the celebration of Christmas and not offending someone um, who doesn't celebrate Christmas and uh, or doesn't uh, observe the same uh, the same uh, religious beliefs that we have around Christmas, spiritual beliefs that we have around Christmas. The uh, Jews, some of the Jews, not by the way, this is interesting that not all Jews are offended. Uh, by um, the celebration of Christmas. There are some groups of Jews that feel like that is an offense to their faith, but there are others who understand that the, um, that, uh, the American Christian tradition is not an enemy of, but a friend to the Jewish world. And they understand that, and rather than taking offense at Christmas and uh, and even the 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 birth the story of the birth of Christ, they they support us in our uh, in our um, faith. Um, then there are so there's the Jews. What is there's some Jewish people who who uh, you know don't celebrate Christmas. There are um, I'm gonna the, I couldn't think of it, the Ebenezer Scrooges of this world who um, uh, you know uh, take offense to this uh, to the to the commercialization of Christmas. So this must be pretty old since the miracle on 30-something Street that my wife makes me watch every year after uh, on Thanksgiving is uh, 32nd, I think it is, is 35th, 34th, 37th, 30th. Anyway, the miracle on 30 Watt Street. And uh, uh, that was written, you know, in the days of black and white and, and uh, all of that kind of stuff, black and white television. They're already, you know, there's a lot of isms in this world, but the worst is commercialism. And, and uh, so already that was a problem in those days. And there were people who complained uh, about it at that time, um, you know, um, as long as I can remember as a Christian, I've heard people complain about, you know, that they put out the Christmas decorations earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier every year, you know, at the stores and uh, that kind of stuff. And pretty soon they just won't have any reason to put them away and you just leave them up all year long and um, and that kind of a thing. And so that people can you can buy stuff for Christmas and just be thinking about it all year long. And uh, but there are those who complain about it for, you know, for those things. And by the way, I will just mention this. Um, so here's the thing. And I don't have a problem with that, that Christmas gets longer every year. You know, there was the 12 days of Christmas and the 24 days of Christmas, and now there's the 365 days of Christmas. I don't have a problem with, with, with that. I don't really have much of a problem with that uh, myself. But I will say, uh, at the earliest Christmas, you, the Christmas tree went up on December 24th, 
And the reason for that is because they were going to hang candles on it and light those dudes. And uh, if the tree was any older than two hours, it was going to burn up and your house went along with it. And uh, so, you know, and but we have um, we have um, low heat light systems that now you can leave your tree up forever and ever and ever. And um, and um, we bought a tree yesterday. We So we have a rule in our home, and, and you know, this has nothing to do with our Ebenezer Scrooge issues, but in our home, the Christmas tree isn't supposed to go up until after December 16th because Anita wants to be able to celebrate her birthday. She doesn't want her birthday to get overwhelmed by Christmas. And so you don't have Christmas until you have, until after you have Anita's birthday. But now they don't, you can't get a Christmas tree. Well, you can if you go to a store. But you, you can't chop down a Christmas tree. Now the tree farms are open after the 16th. And so we got our tree yesterday and we got a tree that they guaranteed would last us until February. <laughs> and it'll be up that long too. And, uh, and so, <laughs> so. Um, we get a late start, but we stay at it for a long time. Anyway, so, uh, 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 but you know, all those different things. And then when I became a believer, uh, I was a young adult when I became a believer, started getting uh, earnest in my faith, and I learned that, that there were some, um, some groups of Baptists uh, um, that, that were uh, opposed not only to, uh, that were opposed to, to, uh, to the celebration of Christmas. And, and um, the first time that I ever heard that the idea, the concept that Christmas is really a pagan, in, um, religion um, and that just got that the road that when Rome when the when Constantine became a Christian he just took all of these pagan uh, rituals and he gave them Christian names and 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 uh, so Christmas he according to this idea is that uh, is a pagan religion that's just been given a Christmas name and uh, that Christ, Christmas means Christ's mass it's when they take the mass for, uh, you know, on the, on the Christmas day. If you look at it, this is, uh, uh, maybe I'll get to this again next week, but if you look, the word Christmas, it is a presumption to say that it means Christ's Mass. It doesn't, it isn't spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S-S. It's spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S. The M-A-S is not a reference to Catholic Mass. That is a misunderstanding. That is, that is a, a leap that is taken by people who assume that the Catholic Church is the oldest church in the world and that the Protestants are those who purified the Catholics. The Mass is not, the, the word M-A-S is not Mass. It means something sent or a message is what it means. Christ was sent. That's what it means. Or the message of Christ. It's not Catholic at all. Anyway, so I'll just, I, that will probably come up in another message at some point. But we do this, we do this in a lot of areas um, where we assume things. Someone said, and we just, it sounds good to us, and so we just assume it. And we do this in a lot of things. We really need to study, learn to study a little bit. And more than just um, Facebook. All right, so, all right, just so you know. Anyway, so, uh, but there are some forms of Protestant Christianity, and this will probably come up in next week's message. There are some forms of Protestant Christianity, um, and, um, and among them, some Baptists who have embraced some Protestant ideas who complain um, about Christmas and complain about the, what they believe is the historical origin of Christmas. We'll deal with that a little bit, probably, as this series goes on the next three weeks. And then atheists, of course, they've made a great inroads in complaining about Christmas. And that's gone through some, some, um, some um, uh, evolution, hasn't it? The atheistic problem with Christmas. There's the, you know, a couple of years ago, it got to where you weren't allowed to say, Merry, they weren't allowed, people in commercial businesses weren't allowed to say Merry Christmas, they had to say Happy Holidays. And that was an attempt to, uh, you know, to kind of do away with the, at least the Christianity part of Christmas and, and, and get that out. And, and, and these days it seems like there's, uh, there are even further inroads. I think I mentioned what maybe last week I mentioned, did I mention? In my mind, I, in my imagination, I think I remember telling you about going to the bank where the bank it couldn't put up any decorations. They could play Christmas music, but they couldn't put up decorations. How silly is that? Anyway, so um, uh, I frankly think putting the music up is better than the decorations because the decorations people can use any way they want to, but the music, some of that music, 
is about Jesus. And anyway, so but that's just me. Then, of course, the Muslims in America, they're influencing leaders of government and businesses to uh, kind of cut down and curtail the celebration of Christmas and all that. And it seems like um, there is there is a, an attack against um, against Christianity that can focus on Christmas. And I just like to suggest that you and I as believers, as independent fundamental Baptists, we ought to have no part of that attack on Christianity that is focused on Christmas. So I want to bring a series of messages starting today. I'm going to, these are messages that have to do with, um, I'm going to call it the series, I'm going to call it Defending the Proper Celebration of Christmas. There is a kind of celebration of Christmas that I think is improper, and, um, and, and we as Christians ought to probably be careful of, but there is a, a proper way to celebrate Christian that you and I as independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptists, we ought to embrace and become uh, fully a part of in our lives. And so what I'm going to try to do in the next three weeks today, I want to begin this series, just three weeks, uh, of the, I'm going to begin this series today, I want to talk about that, I want to bring a message today that um, where, where I show you that the observance of the birth of Christ is not only a biblical, but it is a fundamental practice to faith. I want to show you that observing Christ's birth is fundamental to a believer. It's not just something, it's not just something I like because I like getting presents. By the way, I do. In case you wondered about that, I do like that part too. But, but, but the observance of the birth of Christ, the celebration of the birth of Christ is fundamental to, to Bible-believing Christianity. Next week, what I want to do is uh, I'm going to bring a message that um, will, uh, I will try to answer s- some of the objections uh, that people have make, uh, uh, the accusations that they make against Christianity uh, with the message. I'm gonna, I think the, t- message, the title of the message will be, Did Early Baptists Celebrate Christmas? Uh, because we're Baptists, and you know, and so we'd be. Did early Baptists celebrate Christmas? And uh, I'm going to try to address that subject uh, next week, and I'll, and it'll probably be a lot of things that are built into that message uh, that I'll try to bring up. And then the final message on the 23rd um, is going to be entitled, most likely, the Lord willing, that message will be entitled "Christmas Must Carry Us to the Cross." And so that's the direction that we're going to be taking in the next few weeks. So let's go back to uh, to uh, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Once again, let me read that to you. The Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So let me kind of give you some background to that passage. Judah, in this period of time, this is uh, the prophet Isaiah. He lives in the city of Jerusalem and he is speaking to the king of Judah at that time who lives in Jerusalem. His name is Ahaz. And Judah was in, it was in, uh, these were days, these were terrible days for the nation of, uh, of Judah, the southern kingdom. You know, remember, that the kingdom of Israel have been divided up into two parts. Ten tribes make up the northern kingdom of Israel. Two tribes make up the southern kingdom that is called Judah. And um, the, so we're, I, Isaiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. The king at that time is by the, by the name of Ahaz. Israel, Assyria, a country north of of Israel, Assyria has been oppressing for some time now, uh, had been oppressing the, the, the northern brethren of Judah, the, the, the ten tribes of Israel that make up that northern kingdom there. They've been oppress, oppressing them. And we know historically, and from the word of God, we know that eventually Assyria will conquer, uh, that those ten tribes will conquer Israel and uh, will so un, uh, utterly uh, annihilate them to, that to this very day, no one knows where the ten tribes of Israel are. No one knows who they are. There are people who will know that they're Jewish by blood, but they don't know what tribe of Israel they're from uh, because there's only, there are only records left of the two tribes in Judah. Now, the other records exist. Um, a friend of mine went to Israel not long ago, and um, uh, Brother Stoniker went to Israel not long ago, and he was talking to uh, his guide and, uh, and giving the guide the, the, a plan of salvation. Can you imagine being a guide, a, a Jewish guide to Christians in Israel? How many times you must get the plan of salvation? At least I hope. That's what happens. And, uh, you know, and so he's given the plan of salvation to this guy. And this guy says, uh, he says, Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. And he said, if he were the Messiah, where are the ten? 
Brother Stoniker said at first that took him back. He didn't know what to answer. And so he went back to his motel room that night. He began to study and look at the scriptures. And what the guy was accusing is he was saying when the Messiah comes, God's going to restore the 12 tribes. He's going to come bring them back. And if Jesus Christ were the Messiah, why aren't why are the 10 tribes of Israel still lost? And the point I'm trying to make is uh, Assyria so utterly defeated them uh, at this time in Isaiah's day, so utterly defeated Israel that they do not ex- that they are lost to this day, to this very day. Judah's king at the time, again, he's a man by the name of Ahaz. And so there's the two tribes of Israel. They're the ones who've been remained loyal to the, to the Davidic line for their, of their, uh, for their kingdom and so forth. But that, just because someone is in the line of David doesn't mean he's a good guy. And Ahaz was a very, very wicked king. But he's still, he's still um, God, the king of God's people, nonetheless. Even though he's not a godly man, he is the man that God has on his throne at that time. God uses wicked men from time to time. God can do that and does do that uh, uh, at his pleasure. And you and I need to accept that and embrace that and just go ahead and understand that's going to be what happens. And so uh, Ahaz is on the throne. Uh, everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in Judah is looking up north and they're seeing Assyria. They know that Assyria is, a, is threatening uh, Israel. And they know that if the, once they defeat Israel, if they defeat Israel, once they defeat Israel, that next on their list is going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be Judah. It's going to be them. They know that's the, gonna, the case. And so through all of this, their eyes are on all of this. Through this Isaiah, through Isaiah, God offers to comfort the nation of Judah, comfort the people that live in Jerusalem and those southern kingdoms. God offers to comfort them uh, by promising them that Assyria would not do to them what Assyria was going to do to Israel, to the northern kingdom. And as Isaiah said, I mean, he's talking, he's preaching, he's saying, here's the thing. We know what's happening in, in Israel, and we know that this is the judgment of God, and we know that it's going to happen. God is going to allow it to happen. But Isaiah says to Ahaz the king, here's the thing, uh, uh, king. God says he will not allow Assyria to do that same thing to you, to me, to our nation. And Isaiah says... Uh, to prove God's promise, to in, further encourage you, to further comfort you, to further in, uh, sh- give you assurance in your heart that what God says is true. Here's the thing I want to ask you, I'm going to offer to you. Ahaz, you ask God for a sign. You ask God to give you some kind of sign that will prove to you that God will um, not destroy Judah like he allows Assyria to, that God will not allow Assyria to destroy Judah like he will allow Assyria to destroy Israel. Ahaz, king, go ahead and ask for a sign. Ahaz, in his wickedness and unbelief, refuses to do it. To ask God a sign. Here's the passage. It's in Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 12. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, I don't have time today, and it's not the purpose of this message to try to explain why Ahaz, you know, why, why this is the case. But when Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, this wasn't, this wasn't, a, an, uh, this wasn't out of humility. This wasn't out of, uh, out of being, you know, you know, God, I don't need a sign from you. I believe what you say. It's not like that. When Ahaz refused to ask a sign from the Lord, he he is doing it out of wickedness. He is doing it out of unbelief. He didn't believe the message of the prophet. He did not trust God for anything. And he mocked the very idea uh, of God with the words, neither will I tempt um, the Lord. I'm not going to ask God. I don't even believe in that God. I'm not going to ask God to give me a sign. I don't believe what you're saying, Isaiah. I don't believe the word of God. I don't believe in the God that you preach. I don't believe anything of this. I don't believe any of those things. I'm not going to ask some stupid sign from some stupid God that doesn't stupidly exist is what he's doing there. He is mocking the very idea. And so the next thing, I'm not going to ask a sign. I don't believe in that God. I won't ask a sign from that God. And Isaiah says then in verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give a sign. God is making a promise to the children of Israel, and you or your wickedness will not seek God, will not trust God, will not listen to God, but God is going to keep his promise anyway. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and you and I know that sign to be the story of Christmas, don't we? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now here's, let just get into my defending Christmas thing, uh, thing today. The Bible nowhere teaches us to ignore the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Nowhere. In fact, contrary to that, quite the contrary, the message of Christ's birth is delivered repeatedly in the Word of God. Old Testament and New Testament. Mostly I'm going to focus on the, New Te- on the Old Testament today. But the, but the, birth, the story of the, of the birth of Christ is given over and over and over again in the Word of God. And what I discovered as I pre- prepared for today's message, what I discovered is that many of the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies and promises, promises that have to do with Christ's birth come during a spiritually difficult or a spiritually low time in the nation of Israel. And so as I began to study this out, it's as if whenever Israel got themselves, or whenever the people of God got themselves into a state of, of uh, a low spiritual state, God brought back the message of, of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, to reset them spiritually. So I've given the message today, the title, it's a spiritual, a Christmas reset, or a spiritual reset. It's like a reboot. They're Israel, with the people of God, they're going on, going on, going on, going on, going on. And after a while, they get themselves self, self, so messed up in sin, so confused with the things of this world, so out of sorts with God, that God just brings them back and says, wait a minute, let's go right back to the fundamental. Let's go right back to the first thing. Here's the promise that the Lord will provide a Savior. All right? And I think it's interesting, the ones I'm going to show you today, almost every time you see um, God bring them back to that Messiah, there is some indication that the Messiah is, uh, uh, comes by way of virgin birth. So I want to show you three passages today. Uh, by the way, I don't deny that Christmas is often uh, abused in our world today, um, um, and 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 that we need to be, and that we as believers need to sometimes get our, our own spiritual reset, get ourselves back where we ought to be with Christmas. Uh, the other day, all of us in this room, almost everyone in this room, will remember Brother Bruce Turner, who just finished doing a revival here uh, a little over a month ago. But the other day, Brother Turner um, sent out a reminder. Um, years ago, when Brother Turner pastored in uh, Tampa, Florida, he was the he was a chaplain for the Tampa P- Police Department. And so, in this reminder the other day, he just said, when he served as the uh, the, the chaplain for the police department, um, he learned, discovered that the Thanksgiving and Christmas season um, is a t- is one of the highlight one of the high times of the of the of the year for suicides. This is. This season records more cases of depression, more cases of loneliness, more cases of suicide than any other time of the year. This season. And here's the thing. That ought to tell us that that we've got our eyes off of the proper use of Christmas. And I'm going to I'm going to I don't want to be offensive right now but I'm going to take it a different way than you think I'm going to take it. That a fact that a person could be lonely at Christmas means that they think Christmas is about them. The fact that a person would allow themselves to become um, depressed at Christmas more than another time of year means that their concept of Christmas is about them. The fact that more people would commit suicide during this time of year is an indicator that their their view of Christmas is selfish. It's focused on them. Now, there's some things, you know, everyone else ought to be thinking about, too, with this, you know, and how we're how we ought to be reaching out to people and so forth. But but the truth of the matter is. Almost every, almost every one of us think that Christmas is a time um, of family and friends, and it's a time of gifts, and it's a time of good music, and it's a time of celebration, it's a time, of, and it's all about us. The truth is, if a person really understood what Christmas is, this should be the time of the least amount of depression, the least amount of loneliness, and the least amount of suicides. This is when we talk about when God became man and dwelt among us. This is when God made himself visible to us. This is when God became our high priest. This time of year, what we, what we ought to be celebrating right now is that God is available. That God is here. And that when everyone else forsakes you, when, when everyone else abandons you, when you are all alone in this world, you're not all alone because you have Christ. This isn't a time when, when we should be um, um, bemoaning our sadness or, or uh, growing sad over our losses and how little we have in this life. It ought to be a time when we focus on how wonderful it is to have a God who is very present. That's what we ought to be doing this time of year. Um, 
Christmas is supposed to be a time to reset us in our faith. It's a time to return to the foundations, to the basics of the faith. It's a time to remember John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I don't mean to add a layer of guilt to those who are already hurting during the holidays. I don't mean to add a burden upon those who enjoy their families and friends. I just mean to urge you as believers, make Christ your Christmas. Let him kind of start you all over again, right at the foundation, right at the beginning, right at where we start out, that there is a God who loves you and gave his son for you. So I've already explained to you, I said that what happens is over and over in the Old Testament, we've got these passages that um, take us back to the person of the Lord, to the birth of the Messiah, and kind of rebuild the people. We've already looked at Isaiah chapter 7. I want you to look at three more with me. I'm just going to do it kind of quickly, and there's a lot of verses, and uh, but I'll, I'll go through this very quickly with you today. We won't take long with this message. I, uh, at least I, I'm gonna, I would say I was promised, but I hope. All right. And uh, so the first passage, I want to talk about the seed of the woman. First, very first time, really, that we find the Christmas story in the Word of God. And you may have to think it through a little bit to see that this is a Christmas story, but that's, that's in fact what it is. The first time we find the Christmas story is actually in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Bible says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of life of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So let me kind of give the little background of what's going on in this passage. So before I we talk about the, the promise itself, let's get some of the background. So Adam and Eve, and everyone here I'm certain, is is aware of the of the story, the context here. Adam and Eve have blown it big time, and by this time they know that they've blown it big time. The, the circumstances between Adam and Eve uh, and their sin is a little bit different. Eve, um, the Bible tells us, was deceived into eating that fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. And uh, for whatever reason, she had entertained the questions of the serpent. Yea, hath God said? I don't know why she didn't run. I don't know why she didn't flee. I don't, I don't know why she allowed, even answered back. You know, there are some people when they, when they say things to you, you should just walk away. You don't need to answer them. You don't need to try to argue with them and debate them. or You just need to get away from them. And I don't know why, but Eve chose not to do that. And yea, hath God said, and she turns to a serpent, to a snake, to an animal, and says, and didn't say, I didn't know you could talk. She just says, oh, no, God did say this, but... And, and she gets into a conversation. So she entertains the conversation, the questions of the serpent, and then she looks at the fruit and desires to eat it. And then uh, after she had, she, she entertains the questions, she looks and desires, and then she took of the fruit and ate it. And so the Bible says she was deceived into this. She was, the, the devil deceived her, the serpent deceived her into eating that fruit. Uh, Adam's case is not that way. Adam was, Adam ate the fruit with, um, I'm going to just say, eyes wide wide open. He knew full well what he was doing. She didn't know. Uh, she knew that God had said not to eat the fruit. Uh, and here's the serpent saying, well, if you'll eat that, you'll become as God's knowing good and evil. They already knew good. They just didn't know evil. The devil didn't tell her that part of this thing. If you eat that, you'll get to experience evil. You'll get to experience disobedience. You'll get to experience the consequences of, of a broken fellowship with God. She, devil didn't, serpent didn't tell her that part of the story. And, and so she eats the fruit being deceived. She doesn't know completely what she's doing. Adam, on the other hand, uh, knows exactly what he's doing. He's not deceived, the Bible says. Uh, he likely could already see, and I'm imagining just a little bit here. I don't know for sure that this is true, but I imagine... He can already see the damage done to Eve. She's eaten the fruit before he's eaten it. Now, he, she eats it and then offer, gave it to him, and he ate too. And I'm imagining in my mind that by the, she's eaten that fruit, and by the time she gives it to him, he can already see a change in her countenance, a change in her demeanor. Something is already working that's different in her life. And, uh, but knowing exactly, knowing exactly what he's doing, and knowing exactly, I think, what it did to, to Eve, his wife, he ate the fruit. And I think he ate it for her sake. I think he did it for this reason. My wife just condemned herself. And I love her enough, I don't want her to be condemned alone. I've met people like that who said, 
Uh, my, if my husband, whose husband rejected Christ, if my husband was, is going to go to hell, uh, I'll go to hell with him and, and turn against Christ myself. And uh, I've had people do that and think out of, and I can see, I can see uh, Adam looking at his wife and out of love for her, out of, out of adoration for her, out of maybe even pity for her, he chooses to, uh, to, uh, to take the same step of disobedience that she's taken. She, he chooses to uh, accept the same condemnation that she already knows and and uh, by the way I think this is the reason why um, God doesn't suffer a woman to usurp authority over a man because, and I don't mean this by a joke at all the Bible tells us that women are not to usurp authority over a man and I think it's for this reason a man will do anything for the woman he loves including unbelievable wickedness I think that's why God doesn't want her to have that kind. She's already got a power over him. He doesn't want her to have this extra bit of power and let her be a leader because she will lead him to do things that he wouldn't, that he knows better than doing. But he'll do it anyway for the sake of the woman. But there are, there are differences between the, uh, the, the, the circumstances of Adam and Eve, but there's no difference in the consequences of their sins. Now, because they've sinned, now they, they knew evil, and now uh, they were ashamed. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the Bible says after they ate the fruit, they were ashamed. They knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. I wonder if Eve already knew she gave that fruit to Adam. I wonder if she already knew. And I wonder if that's at least one of the things. Uh, there has to have been, in my mind, a, a change in countenance with Eve. And she, as she understands sin. She understands evil. She understands shame and, and, um, and, and nakedness. And, and, and Adam has to be able to see that. Anyway, so now uh, they, they both know evil and they're ashamed of it. Uh, and, um, and because of their sin, they're both going to be judged because of it. The sin of Adam and Eve would not only affect them, but we know from the Word of God that it's going to affect all of their children after them. They would be, their children, them, they and their children, uh, they would be driven from the garden, they'd be driven away from the tree of life, they'd be driven out of fellowship with God, their children would be conceived in sin, shaped in iniquity, and corrupted in their, in their own nature. And from now on, because of Adam and Eve and their sin, the earth would bring forth thorns and thistles, and the women would bring forth children in sorrow, and the men would eat bread by the sweat of their face. There'd be, there was no date given when this sentence would be commuted. You know, when you go to, you know, you, you know, I, I have no personal experience of this. This is just what I understand. When you go to court and you get sentenced and you've done something wrong and the judge says, guilty! And he sentences you. But there's always a time limit. There's always an end to it. He's going to sentence you. He's going to be to five years or ten years or twenty years or it might even be for life. But there's always a date given of when this thing is going to end. There's, it's going to, from this time to this time. But there's a, nothing like that given to Adam and Eve. There's no date. It's just, here it is because of the sin. Here's the way it's going to be. The earth will bring forth thorns and thistles, and women will bear for children in sorrow, and men will eat their bread by the sweat of their face. It's going to stay like that. There's no time off for good behavior. Uh, there's, there's, there's no thing that Adam or Eve can do to reverse the damage that they've done. It's this way, and it looks like it's going to be this way into, into eternity. But in the middle of all of this, the weight of guilt God gave them a reason for hope. He says in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, above the bill, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of life, and I'll put enmity between thee and uh, the woman. I had to read the first verse there, because the enmity is between the serpent, um, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The enmity isn't between God and the woman. The enmity isn't between Adam and the woman. The enmity is between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. So the focus of God's enmity is not on the man, but on the serpent. Did you see that? God's not, he's not focusing his anger, his enmity against the man. It's focused on the serpent here. The judgment is focused on the serpent. Yes, the man is going to face consequences. Yes, the woman is going to face consequences. Yes, their children will face consequences. But God's judgment, God's condemnation, the, 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 the focus of God's ire and wrath here is against the serpent, against the devil. The Bible doesn't say that God would from then on be at war with the man, but from then on, God would be at war with the serpent, with the devil. And God told him in this promise that it would be a, a long and painful war, but that the seed of the woman would one day bruise the head or deliver a death blow to the serpent. It's the very first 
promise of the virgin birth this is. The seed, we all know, um, is not of the woman, but it's of the man. He says the seed of a woman, that's an impossibility. The woman isn't the bearer of seed. And so what this means is this is going to be a child born of a woman, but without a man involved. Everyone, everyone in this room faces the consequences of sin. Our, our circumstances are all different. Some of us were raised in rough, hard conditions and sin was kind of a family way of life. And some of us were raised in poor and difficult circumstances and sin seemed necessary in order to survive. And some of us were raised in nearly perfect circumstances. My son Caleb apparently was raised that way. And, um, and, but we, but he sinned anyway. We sin anyway. Whatever the circumstances behind our sin, here's the thing, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Whatever the circumstances behind our sin, the Bible says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because we are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so here's point number one. when When the burden of your, or when your sins burden you down, go back to Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever uh, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then there's the story of the stone cut without hands. This is in Daniel in chapter number 2, verse 34. Thou sawest till the stone... Till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, and that were made of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. So, let me give you the story here. The children of Israel messed up, alright? The first one's Adam and Eve. They messed up. Now it's the children of Israel. They've really messed up. Despite all of the advantages that they had as the people of Israel, and they did have advantages. They were the apple of God's eye. They were the possessors of the word of God. They had been uh, gifted of God to, to uh, gifted, they had men gifted of God to lead them and to correct them and to get them on the right path. But they got off course anyway so badly, in fact, that ten of the tribes uh, were uh, essentially annihilated. We already spoke about that. And, and um, the last two remaining tribes had been conquered by the Babylonians and taken into captivity. It's a terrible situation, this idea of captivity. The city of Jerusalem has been torn to the ground. The, uh, the temple has been, uh, has been broken down so, so that there's not one stone remaining on another. Uh, and they have been taken over by another country, taken into another country. But the, although the situation was terrible. God had superintended this thing. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the victorious nation against, uh, against Jew- Jerusalem, had taken from among these Jews some of their brightest young people and given them a place of prominence. prominence. We know them. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and maybe there were some others, but the Bible focuses on these four and one of them in particular, Daniel. And so uh, now these four are given places of leadership, prominence. They have access to Nebuchadnezzar. And so one night, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and the dream troubles him so that uh, you know he wakes up troubled by his dream but he can't remember the dream. Have you ever had that happen? I had a dream that made me where I couldn't sleep. I'm scared to death. I don't want to go back to sleep because that dream scared me. What was the dream about? I don't know. Just know it was terrible. And uh, so the king wakes up and he's had his dream and it was a terrible dream and it's troubled him, the Bible says. It's troubled him, but he can't remember the dream. So he calls in his wise men, his soothsayers, brings them in and says, uh, uh, you know, I, I had this dream and I want to know what the dream was and I want to know what the dream meant. And they said, well, you, no king has ever asked a guy to do that before. You tell us what your dream is and we can tell you what we think it means. But we can't tell you what you dreamed. And so the king's getting ready to have everybody executed for that. All the wise men and soothsayers, Daniel and is taken and they're going to throw him in and, and execute him. He says, what's this about? He doesn't even know what's going on. What's this about? He said, well, all the wise men, none of you guys can answer the king's uh, dream. And so he was going to kill you all. And Daniel says, well, give me a little bit of time. I know a God who can answer in that dream. I know a God who can tell me what the dream is and a God who can tell me what it means. And so Daniel's given some time. He gets a hold of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pray. God gives to Daniel the, both the dream and the interpretation of it. And, and so he goes back into the king and he describes the, to the king his dream. And I'm going to try to do this quickly. He says, um, you in your dream, you saw an image. And the image, in the, the image was the head was made out of gold. The chest and arms were silver. The belly and thighs were brass. The legs were iron and the feet were iron and and clay, and he says, as you saw, you saw this, this, this image up there made of all those things, and while you're looking at the image, all of a sudden there is a stone that's cut out without hands that comes, and it destroys the image and becomes a mountain. That's the dream that you saw. And then Daniel interpreted the dream for the king, and he says that the, the, the image that you saw represents the four great empires that will happen in history. And King uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the image made, you're the head made out of gold, and after you will be the Medo-Persian Empire, and he doesn't say Medo, we know in historically that this 
is what happens after you. Is, no, there's Babylon, and then there's the Medo-Persian Empire. That's followed by the Grecian Empire. That's followed by the, Romans, by the Roman Empire. And so all of that has already happened. Historically, all of those things have already happened. But he says, then, king, you saw, you saw this image, these empires that are going to come up after you. You saw these, this image, and then you saw a stone that was cut out without hands. And it came, and it destroyed the, the image. It destroyed those empires. Now, we know that stone to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of verses. Genesis 49 and verse 24. The Bible says, But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. It says, The mighty of God of Jacob, from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The Messiah, the shepherd, his, his, one of his names is the stone of of Israel. First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. And did all drink of the same spiritual drink and all drank of that spiritual, all did uh, drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. King, here's what you saw. You saw the four great empires that will happen in human history. And as you watched it, you saw it, you watched it until a, un, until one who was made without hands the Messiah comes and destroys those kingdoms and establishes his own kingdom. He's giving him, he is giving him a reference to, when, to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah's coming. Both and, and because it's a stone cut without hands, that's the virgin birth. And it destroys the kingdoms. That's his, that's his first coming. It destroys his kingdom, the kingdoms. That's Jesus' second coming. And here's the thing. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he's going to defeat the kingdoms of this earth. He'll establish his own kingdom. And um, again, the fact that it was cut without hands, it's representative of the virgin birth. After Daniel had finished um, giving to the king this interpretate what his dream was in the interpretation. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47, the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, saying thou couldst reveal this thing. So, again, when we get overwhelmed in our world today, when we start to believe that the devil is the victor, that the atheists have won, that the secularists have spoiled everything, that Christianity is ruined, that nothing is ever going to change for the better. When we start to think that way, just go back to Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know this world isn't getting better. I know it seems like, and you know, you think about this, say, well, you've got a, um, the head of gold and the, the torso of brass and the legs, uh, uh, torso of silver and the legs of, of brass and the feet of, of iron and clay. And you look at that thing and you think, you know, though it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But it does, and the Bible tells us it's going to happen that way. It's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes and it gets better. Really better. When you get overwhelmed in this world, the message of Christ's birth is a way to reboot, to reset spiritually, to come back to the fundamentals of our faith. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then one final one I'll give you. This is Micah's Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible says, But thou, Bethlehem, afraid of, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, uh, give a little bit of background. Micah and Isaiah are prophets in Jerusalem, are prophets in Judah at the same time. So uh, Isaiah kind of gives us some of the background and some of what's context of what's going on in the world of that day. Micah's background is exactly the same of Isaiah. The difference is so so uh, they they're preaching at the same time. Uh, they're preaching in the same country, which is Judah. Uh, they're preaching the very same message. The only difference is is that Isaiah is a big city preacher. He preaches in the city of Jerusalem. Micah is a country preacher. But they're preaching the same message to the same people at the same time. I want you to notice Micah chapter five and verse one. The Bible says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. Uh, he, hath, he hath laid siege against us. That They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod and upon a rock. And, and interesting, so um, gather thyself in troops, O Israel. And then the next verse is, But thou Bethlehem afraid of. A message about the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do they connect together? All right, so remember Isaiah and Micah. They're preaching during the, they're, they're both preaching during the threat of, during the threat of Assyria against 
Israel, and they're preaching before the capture of Judah by Babylon. They're both preaching at that period of time. But it is agreed by Bible students that the subject of Micah is not talking about either Assyria or Babylon. So, you know, what he's saying is, gather to Israel, uh, people of God, gather your troops against this, against this great nation, gather your troops against this threat. But the threat is not Assyria, and the threat is not Babylon. We know from the context of the book of Micah, it can't be either one, it can't be Assyria, it can't be Babylon, it has to be the nation of Rome. That they're battling in this case. Uh, there is a series of, uh, I'm going to call them extra biblical events that happened in that period of time um, after the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity to when Jesus comes. And uh, um, that about a period of about 400 years after the book of Malachi is finished until the time when Jesus comes. About a 400 year period of time um, between the Old and New Testaments uh, there. And, and it was a time of have terrible trouble in Israel. It's the days in which movies are made. Um, um, this period of time, the 400 years, it's a time when movies were made about the time Alexander the Great lived during this 400 year period of time and conquered the world in his day during that period of time. Alexander the Great tromped his way through Israel to go to and establish his, his city of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they're all, that's all happening in this 400 year period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Caesar and, Bre- and Brutus, a two Brutus, and all of that happens. Brutus, uh, uh, you know, uh, turning against his friend Caesar. All of this happens. All of this happens during that 400-year period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. During this period, Greece had conquered Jerusalem, and Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the altar in Jerusalem by uh, sacrificing a pig in the altar of the temple there in Jerusalem. Uh, that happened about 200 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Rome conquered Greece around 150 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, from after Rome conquered uh, uh, Greece for about 100 years. Uh, for almost a hundred years, um, Rome and Egypt fought each other. And so what would happen is Rome would march down to Egypt to fight, or Egypt would march up toward Rome to fight, and they'd meet in Israel to conduct their battles. They tell me, I cannot tell you if this is true or not, but they tell me that Israel was a land that uh, flowed with milk and honey, that there were trees galore, all or cedars and, 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 and every kind of tree imaginable in the, in the nation of Israel, but that the reason the land looks like the desert today is because every time the Romans and the Egyptians got there to fight, they'd start chopping down the trees. Until there was not a tree to be had in Israel anymore. Now all of that happened for a hundred years. They're just beating this place up, beating this place up, beating this place up. Rome had conquered and occupied Jerusalem about 63 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And so now Jesus is born. The Jews knew they couldn't defeat the Romans. And Rome had allowed them to pretend they were the Jews. Had allowed the Jews to pretend that they're leaving their own country. So the Romans are in occupying Jerusalem. And the Jews are kind of letting them occupy occupy Jerusalem, but it's not a friendly environment. When Jesus is born, Jerusalem, Israel, is not a friendly environment by any means. The king of Israel at the time was a man by the name of Herod um, the Great, and uh, uh, he's he's the king at the time of Christ's birth. He's uh, Herod the Great. Uh, He's he's not a Jew. um, His family was um, from the family of Esau, but he had been raised a Jewish proselyte. So he is a Gentile man who practiced Judaism. And the Romans thought, this is a great compromise right here. Here is a man who has no blood allegiance to Israel, but he does have religious allegiance to them. And so we've got him by blood, but they can claim him by religion. And and, and, and it looks like, you know, this will be a great compromise man to have Herod be the leader. But in fact, he's the perfect representative. Herod is the perfect representative of the mess that Jerusalem is in at the time. He's not a Jew, but he ruled the Jews. Uh, He's not a Roman, but he got his authority from Rome. And he's jealous of everybody. Herod the Great, jealous of everybody. When word got to him that there had been one born uh, who had a claim to the to the the kingdom of David, um, uh, he grows in terribly jealous over this and wants to destroy this one. And it's in that environment that Micah is prophesying that Christ would be born. But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And notice that he says that. Even though Christ would come forth of Bethlehem, his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. 
What that means is though he was born in Bethlehem, he didn't begin there. Jesus was born, but he's God in flesh. It's another reference to the virgin birth. Christmas, the time when we remember that our Savior that is God among us, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all about the virgin birth. This is an important and important doctrine. Do you ever, do you ever think your world is too violent, too troubled, too confusing, uh, too difficult to see who to trust and who to follow and who's really teaching the truth? Do you ever get to thinking it's just, it's such a mess, I don't even have any clue which direction to go? Well, then it's time to go back to Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I've only given you a handful of Bible passages that point to the birth of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't bring up anything from the New Testament passages. You know, Two out of four of the Gospels give you at least two and, may, and sometimes more than two chapters on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, uh, the book of John, and, uh, uh, implies the, 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 the Christmas story, the birth of Christ in, in uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14, and then again in John chapter 3 and verse 16 that I've brought up. Uh, Paul speaks about it in Galatians chapter 4. I read that passage to you already. And so over and over and over again in the Bible, the Bible keeps taking us back to this time, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while the Bible nowhere forbids or even discourages us from celebrating the birth of Christ, it does repeatedly take us back to the birth of Christ as the one who forgives our sins, as the hope for our future, and as the focus as the focus when we've lost our way in this world. I'm just going to tell you, uh, those people who, um, who uh, try to cause you to doubt Christmas, well, your church is pagan. Your church has embraced a pagan holiday because they celebrate Christmas. Uh, the early Christians didn't uh, celebrate Christmas. And only the Catholic, the pagan, wicked Catholics celebrate Christmas. And all the kind of stuff that they do to try to get you and you start to cause you to doubt. All of those people, they're, they're, they have embraced a wicked, unbelieving idea. The Bible does not forbid you to observe the celebration of Christ, the, uh, the, uh, celebrate the, the birth of Christ. But the Bible does keep taking you back to his birth to get your bearings once again. To get when you get all messed up, you go back to this promise that God is going to become flesh and dwell among us. And from there, look up and move on for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a wicked thing to celebrate Christmas. It can be wicked, but, you know, we can turn anything into a wrong thing. It's not a wicked thing to celebrate Christmas. It is an entirely appropriate and biblical thing. Fundamental, foundational to our faith. 